0: Hello, and welcome to Between the Lines, taking you behind the local news,
1: food, theaters, and more in Rhode Island. Between the Lines is an intimate, oral, deep dive into the stories and developments found within Motif magazine. This week, Michael Billow talks with Greg Nordine of RIPTA and the Public Transit Authority. Between the Lines is sponsored by R1 Indoor Karting, the Trinity Brewhouse Beer Garden,
0: Maker Fair, and Graysale Brewing of Rhode Island. So, welcome to uh, the Motif Podcast, and uh, I'm Michael Billow, the news editor at Motif, and you are. Uh, my name is Greg Nordine, and I'm RTA's chief of strategic advancement at Rhode Island Public Transit Authority. Yes, correct, at the Rhode Island Public Transit Authority. Yes. Okay. So, how long have you been there, by the way, in that capacity?
1: Uh, I've been at the agency now for it'll be um, it'll be 11 years in October, but I've been in my
0: current role for the past two and a half. It'll be three years in January. And could you give us an idea of what it is your job actually covers?
1: Yeah, uh, I am responsible for several departments in the agency. I oversee our planning functions, so long-range and short-range service planning. I also oversee our marketing department, customer service, and then our uh, project management department, which is our newest department. They're they're responsible for our capital program.
0: And what are your uh, priorities, both short-term and long-term?
1: Well, I think in the short term, you know, our priorities really are focused on uh, some of the pilot work we have going on right now with our electric buses, uh, working on this Thornton Street Transit Center project that we've been uh, tasked with by the governor, uh, and then I'm also uh, really focused on just uh, making sure that we are starting the early stages of our transit master plan implementation, Transit Forward 2040, or Transit Forward Rhode Island 2040. In the long term, it's really focusing on the the, the implementation of that plan in full. Uh, so, it, you know, there was a plan we had, that was adopted by the state planning council in December of 2020, and it outlines pretty um, substantial growth for the transit network in the state, uh, bringing in you know uh, rail, uh, thinking about expanded bus service across the state. Really focusing on uh, kind of the fundamentals of really good transit, which is Frequency span and, um, uh, uh you know, ensuring great server on nights and weekends and all kinds of great stuff. Um, that's kind of the big, big thing we're we're working on. Uh, and that's definitely where, you know, even though it's got a 20 year horizon, we're actively working on making sure that we're, um, setting ourselves up to implement that, even though it's currently
0: unfunded. All right. Well, what, what has to happen by 2040?
1: Well, it's a lot of things. I mean, it's, it's you know, uh, we're calling for a near doubling of our bus service. So today we have about 240 vehicles on our fleet on the fixed route side. That's the big buses that everyone knows and sees. Uh, those we expect to go north of 400 vehicles. Uh, you know, we're looking at the possibility of light rail along um, kind of a north to south spine from Central Falls to Warwick. We're looking at the possibility of bus rapid transit. So it's lots of capital work. It's lots of um, service planning, it's, you know, identifying, uh, it's identifying funding sources for all of this. And it's just, it's, it's kind of all angles where it's, I would say, probably the biggest thing we're working on. It's also probably the most challenging. But, uh, you know, if we get it right, I mean, this is the type of thing that it, it you know, it, it moves us forward in terms of both transportation options, but it's also one of the biggest things that can be done to help the state with combating climate change. Uh, you know, our estimates are that this would, would increase ridership more northward of 60% and it would be, uh, you know, it would help the state. I think it's like we, we estimated like somewhere around six or 7% of reduction in climate and uh, greenhouse gas emissions if, when fully implemented.
0: What is your current ridership?
1: We are down right now, uh, because of the pandemic. Uh, last count, we we're at about 13 million passengers per year. Prior to the pandemic, we were at about 16, uh, 16 and a half. So we're we're slowly rebounding. Um, uh, we're kind of in the thick of the of the middle of it with a lot of our peers industry wide. Like we're all kind of having the same issues right now. Uh, people's travel patterns have changed, uh, and so we're you know um, we're 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 slowly rebounding. But we're about
0: thirteen million people a year right now. Do you have a sense of the the demographics of uh, your ridership? I mean, where are they and who are they?
1: Yeah, we have a, we, we actually, so we, we, we've done a, we do a lot of work on this. Uh, once every, uh, three or four years, we do a, uh, rider survey that actually tracks the demographics of who our passengers are, uh, and also, um, where they're going, uh, going to and from. Uh, we also did a lot of work on that on our transit master plan as well. Um, you know, overwhelmingly our passengers tend to not have cars or limited access, limited access to cars. So, it's not uncommon to hear that our passengers don't have a car at all or only have one vehicle in their household um our our demographics actually tend to be more male our riders tend to be more male uh we you know they tend to um have lower income uh you know it's uh, uh, yeah i mean it's uh we have a pretty good sense we actually just completed a rider survey uh, we just I just saw the first draft of the report for that last week, so I anticipate we're going to have some more information about that here pretty shortly. That'll be on our website, uh, sort of going into a deep dive with the most recent riders, rider survey results.
0: There are some cities like New York or even Boston where a large percentage of the population does not have access to a car. Mm-hmm. And as a result, the, the demographics of the ridership tend to not be restricted to lower income. And there are other cities like Los Angeles, and I would suggest maybe Providence, um, where most people do have some access to a car, and that tends to ch- change the income profile of your demographics of the ridership. Absolutely. So, what, what, for example, is the average income um, on your riders?
1: I don't want to misquote this, but I know it's you know like, or it's not uncommon to have riders that are that are. I mean, uh, uh, living below the pro- poverty threshold in the state. Um, I, I I don't have the exact number in front of me right now, but I know that an overwhelming majority of our riders are, are generally less well off uh, financially.
0: Yes. And, uh, I mean, there's also, I think, probably a significant population of uh, people who are disabled uh, who use RIPTA because they either cannot drive or they have a very limited income as a consequence.
1: Yeah, it's it's sort of fascinating because I mean the, you're you're absolutely correct in that, Michael. Um but what's interesting about our system is when you when you compare us to other peers around the country and you look at the um passengers per revenue hour, which is kind of a metric that we use to determine um it normalizes transit agencies across one another, right? So if you have a really large system like New York, they have X number of hours of service. If you have a smaller system like you know, Topeka, Kansas, they have X numbers of hours of service. They're kind of apples to oranges, right? So the way you do that is you divide the number of passengers by the, the amount of service they put out, uh, your revenue hours, and that tells you kind of how on par they are with each other. In Rhode Island, we actually punch well above our weight. We're in the 90th percentile for um, passengers per revenue revenue hour as of 2019. Now, that's probably changed since the pandemic. Um, but when I was looking at, you know, looking at the data, if you look at every, service provider of fixed-route bus service in the country, we're in the 90th percentile uh, for um, passengers per revenue, which is a great metric for determining how many people ride the system we have available. What that tells me is we just don't have enough service on the street. We need to put more service out because uh, people do ride it. Um, so, you know, you look at other agencies. I always like to point it, like, you know, um, there are agencies out there uh, that have invest have double the service we have, um, you know, and they don't, and they carry, um, you know, 80% of the riders we do. I mean, it's for the size of our system and, uh, you know, the demographics of our state and, and, and we, we actually carry a, we have a very high number of people who ride our system,
0: just convincing more people to do so. (laughs) Well, that, that leads me to another question, I think, which is, uh, how imbalanced are the routes? In other words, there are some routes that are very, very heavily used, I think, and some routes that are less well used. Um, I believe I was told that the most heavily traveled route on your system is the R-line. Uh-huh. And what percentage of your total ridership is on the R-line alone?
1: Yeah, uh, our, the R-Line, it fluctuates and it has changed with the pandemic, but it usually is about 20% of our ridership. So about one in every five passengers of boarding our system is getting on the R-Line. Um, and there is some imbalance because you have routes that are very much focused on the urban urban core, you know, where there's a lot of density. Uh, you know, I think about the 31 or the 56 or the R-Line or the 1. These are These are not going through suburban or rural areas. They're really focused on. Uh, you know, they're really focused on kind of where there's the most density. And so they tend to carry a lot more passengers. Uh, and then you have routes that, are, you know, they tend to be a little more rural in character uh, and they've got less frequency on them and they tend to be, you know, they tend to be a little more lightly traveled, but you kind of get to an underlying question that we have to ask ourselves when you're talking about bus routes, which is, is ridership the only thing that really matters? Is it, you know, or is it about providing access for people who maybe don't have, a car and live in rural areas and so sometimes you know we look at routes that don't necessarily carry as many passengers and we don't view that as necessarily a bad thing all the time it's uh you know we obviously want people to ride and we want to make that service attractive but there is a reality that we are we have a responsibility to provide coverage across the state as best we can within the limited resources we have and so we try to strike that balance of generating as much ridership but also acknowledging that sometimes there are routes that have have um, uh, needs that go beyond just ridership.
0: Well, th- then there are also um, issues because Ripta is very unusual in that it is not a citywide system; it is a statewide system. And I don't know if there are any other statewide integrated rapid transit systems like like Ripta. Um, so, you know, on one hand, you have things like the R line that runs at some points, I think, every ten minutes. Mm-hmm. And then you have things like the 60, which you know takes over an hour to travel end to end because it it goes all the way up to say Newport.
1: Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And that's uh, in the 60 is a workhorse. I mean, it carries a lot of passengers. You know, we see several thousand pass several thousand boardings a day, uh, a couple thousand boardings a day on the 60 um, when it's at its busiest. And uh, you know, it's uh, it definitely. Um, it's a long route. But yeah, no, you're you're hitting the nail on the head. We are a unique system in a lot of ways because we're not the Providence Transit Authority, whereas most most transit agencies are really focused on the central municipality. Uh, we, we provide a lot of service in Providence because you know naturally that's where most of our ridership is. But um, uh, yeah, no, we have a little bit of a strange mandate in the sense that it we are you know, we are focused beyond just the Providence Metro.
0: So you're starting an experiment, I believe, on September 1st, where the R-line will be free for a year, no, no fare box, no fares. Correct. Um, tell me about that. How did that come about? Who's paying for it? Um, and what are your expectations for it? What is the goal?
1: Yeah, so it's an interesting pilot. Uh, this was actually pushed forward by the legislature. Um, it was two representatives, Representative Coleman and um Why am I forgetting the second one? I'm sorry. I'm having a...
0: Is that by any chance
1: Representative Ewer? It was not Representative Ewer. Uh, I cannot remember her name, and I'm sorry. (laughs) But um, there were two state representatives uh, that were pushing, that advanced this legislation, uh, and it was included in the state's budget. We're receiving funding from the budget for this year to make up the lost revenue. We've also received some funding to help support the study of it, so we are going to be um, studying this over the next year, uh, bringing on some, uh, you know, uh, polling passengers about what they like and don't like about it. But it's also not just passengers. We're going to be talking to our drivers. We're going to be talking to people that are riding other bus routes. We're going to be talking to people that, you know, don't use RIFT at all to find out if this was more attractive to them or kind of what. But it's it's kind of a big experiment just to see what the impacts are if, if there is a barrier for people riding our system um, you know, this is kind of a big trend right now in the industry. Uh, there's a lot of places that are experimenting with us. MBT up to the north has got a few routes that are operating fare free right now. Um, most notably Kansas City, Missouri, their transit system has gone fare free completely, uh, I believe like two or three years ago. Um, and so I think we're just kind of interested to see what happens. Uh, it has, it raises a lot of interesting questions. Um, my, my, my sense is that we're going to learn a lot over the next year. My, uh you know, my personal, I don't want to go too far into the weeds on this, but my personal feelings is that, you know, we should be making arguably, I think a lot of our um, struggles as an age or not struggles, but I think when people choose to ride Ripta, um, you know, we want to provide a service that's really robust and and it gets people where they want to go and is there when they need it. And um I'll be really interested to see how people perceive this fare-free pilot, if it's going to, um, in that regard, but it'll be an interesting year. We're looking forward to it.
0: Well, I, I asked uh, um, your CEO Scott Evadesian a couple of weeks ago about concerns or possibility of just making the entire system fair free, and he said that would cost about fifty million five zero million dollars. <laughs> and I, I would assume you 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 would concur with that. I don't know where he got the number, but I assume it's right. And what do you think are the prospects of that ever happening? And also, um, how much is the uh, the experiment costing the pilot?
1: So the pilot all in is about two and a half million dollars. Um, and that is covering um, lost revenue from the fare box directly. Uh, you know, I mean, it's really not a question of, for me to say, you know, is this going to expand to other routes or not? Like this is being, you know, this is this is being advanced by the legislature. I mean, my my feeling on this is that, um, you know, whatever is decided uh, is, uh, um, you know, this isn't this is not a one time cost. This is an annual operating cost. I think some of the challenges we have is that we do have a lot of third parties that purchase fares on behalf of other people. So you've got major pretty much every university in in the state with the exception of two. We have a direct relationship with who are buying fares for their students. Uh, including, you know, every single private university in the state, uh, making the system fare-free is now essentially, you know, passing that burden from those universities to the taxpayers. Um, that, you know, it's, I mean, I would also argue if you're looking at $50 million a year, is it more valuable to provide fare-free service or is it is it expanding service to places that maybe don't have it or improving services that already exist? I mean, $50 million is a not inconsequential amount of money that could be used to great effect to significantly expand our footprint across the state uh, and improve that service. And um, there's ways to do that, that you're still um, ensuring that people who need um, have the greatest need are still, you know, getting those services and making sure that that transit is affordable. And, and um, uh, but, you know, like, like I said, I think I'm I'm keeping an open mind as we go into this. Uh, and we're going to see what happens over the next year. I'm, I'm definitely excited to kind of see what, how this turns out. I mean, the rider, the R line is a really popular route and moves a lot of people. So I think we're going to learn, like I said, I think this is a, we're going to learn a lot over the next year about how this, how this route, um, how it, how it's going to impact, you know, where we're going
0: from here. When you take into account all of the institutional buyers of, uh, prepaid fares, and that includes mm-hmm. colleges, universities. I don't know if most high schools, but particularly employers. And you put all that together, how much is the revenue from that source?
1: It's around thirteen million dollars a year, um, and that's uh, I think that's all of our colleges and
0: employers, all in. When I last looked at this, and this is years ago, I think I, I probably I, looked, I dealt I. I took a deep dive into the weeds on this in about 2015. Um, RIPTA was spending about $4.70 for each ride. uh, Yes. And the fare was about $2. I think it just increased. Um, What does it cost RIPTA now per rider? It's gone up.
1: Uh, Fuel prices have gone up. Inflation, uh, we're around $6 a passenger. Um, so our base fare is still $2. We've, we've maintained that base fare. We have no intention of raising those fares. Uh, but it's, it's around, it's, it's north of $6, but it's under seven. So I don't remember the exact figure of my head, but it's, 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 yeah, we're, it's a subsidized service, but pretty much, you know, all highways are subsidized as well. It's a, it's definitely, yeah.
0: Well, as I recall, a large source of your revenue, I think the major source of revenue is from the gasoline tax. Yes. What, what comes? How much comes from from that? <sighs> uh,
1: the gas tax makes up. I want to say it's in the twenty millions. Twenty millions. Um, I don't know what the most recent numbers are, but it's it's. I want to say it's like the twenty, the thirty million range is what where our gas tax is coming in.
0: Okay, and I realize you're not primarily concerned with finance. So <laughs> I get the my, my primary
1: job is spending the money.
0: <laughs> okay, fair enough, fair enough. Um, so to conclude the discussion on the, the the pilot, what is your ultimate expectation? What, what do you want to find out? What does Ripta want to find out from this pilot?
1: Well, I think at the end of the day, you know, our primary motivation is getting people to ride Ripta. We want people to ride buses. We want people to get out of their cars, to bicycle, to walk, to take transit as much as possible. And so, I think my expectation is: is this a way of increasing ridership? Yes or no? And if it does, great. That's awesome. We need to do more of that. Uh, but you know, I think the proof is going to be in the pudding. And you know, we we I, like I said, I don't I don't know that I have personal expectations of how it's going to turn out. But I if I, I mean, I think it's worth asking the question, are we increasing ridership? And is this making transit uh, better in Rhode Island? And if that's the case, then we'll figure out how to proceed from there.
0: Okay. Um, let's move on to the uh, the new acquisition of 14 electric buses. Yes. Uh, which you had a very big ceremonial rollout for a couple of weeks ago um, with the entire Rhode Island congressional delegation, the governor, the lieutenant governor, uh, the CEO of RIPTA, um, somebody from the uh, uh, manufacturer of the company that makes the buses and um, a representative, the regional director of the uh, Highway Transportation Authority or whatever it is, uh, which I have written down some of it. I remember off the top of my head what the agency's name is. Um, so that's a major priority, obviously. And, you know, I know Ripta ran uh, three buses that they leased that were all electric, for those, I think since 2018 or so. And uh maybe you could give me a sense of how that experiment went with those three buses, uh, where the project stands with the fourteen new buses, and I, I understand that the, the the federal government is subsidizing those fourteen buses uh with the expectation that they will pull uh fossil fuel buses out of service in equal numbers. So the 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 new all electric buses will replace I guess your oldest, most polluting diesel fuel buses. Correct. So yes. Oh, go oh, sorry. And you also are, are constructing a uh, charging system for it. Yes. So where where does all this stand? How many of those buses are out? When will they be deployed? Where's yeah. Kind of so
1: it's, it's so the first three buses we received; those have been in operations for about three years now. Uh, we bought we we leased three of them. And that was really done as just a demonstration pilot for us as an agency to kind of get our hands around the, the challenges around electrification. So it was, you know, figuring out how, you know, do we have to train drivers differently on these? Do they operate differently than a diesel vehicle? Uh, what are the limitations, but also what are the, what are the advantages? And I think out of that pilot, we, we learned a lot of, a lot of things. Inclu- I mean, most importantly, stuff we didn't realize we were going to learn which was, you know, that these vehicles really are not, it's not the same thing as buying a diesel vehicle and, and swapping them out one for one. Um, they have, they're much more temperamental to just how they're driven in terms of impacts to range. So if it's a rainy day or if it's a, you know, you have a driver who is uh, more um, heavy on the brake than a different driver, like all, like every little thing that you can possibly imagine has an impact on the range of that vehicle. And so, one of the things that we we learned from this is that for this pilot with the R-Line, uh, this transition to an electric fleet with the R-Line, we didn't want to put ourselves in a position where we we're going to have vehicles that were running out of juice halfway through the day because um, uh, we generally don't, like when we deploy a bus in the morning, it generally stays out for 16 hours at a time. And we didn't want to create a scenario where we had to, like, double our fleet so they could all be swapped out in the middle of the day. So that led us to this path where we created this charging station down at the um, intersection of Broad and Broad Street and Montgomery on the Providence-Cranston city line. Uh, and so the, these vehicles that we're purchasing for this new project are what, we're call, what are called an inline charging system, where they actually just top up kind of at the end of every trip. They might charge for, like, five, ten minutes and then go back into service rather than having to come back to our garage. Um, and that has its own complications. Obviously, we have to build a whole charging facility that's under construction right now. Uh, but it will kind of address some of the range issues that we were concerned about. Um, when you think about that in this totality, if you have to build a charging station for every bus route, it kind of adds up in terms of cost pretty quickly. So, uh, you know, we're, we're continuing to monitor what's going on in the industry. We're hopeful that, you know, as we progress that. The range is getting better on vehicles. I just came back from a um, conference a couple weeks ago where we're learning about some of the new, newer technologies, and it's clear range is getting better. So we're thinking that you know it might not be every route that needs to have charging infrastructure installed on it. It Might just be some. Um, But we're we're right now uh, we're developing a plan that takes the recommendations from our state or our, our transit master plan, Transit Forward, Rhode Island 2040, and it couples them with our desire to be uh to decarbonize our fleet and we're calling it our action plan for electrification and service growth and it's essentially a step-by-step 20-year plan that gives very clear like in year one here's what you have to do in year two you need to build a charging facility in year three you got to build a a new garage in year four you got to procure 20 vehicles whatever it is so that's actually in development right now we expect that that'll be done uh sometime this spring uh spring of 23 uh and yes we're excited about that um as far as the new project goes we have um 14 vehicles that are on order we have received four of them so far uh and the rest of them will be here by the end of the year so they're coming in kind of on a one-by-one basis we expect that the charging station will be operational by the end of the year as well uh barring any sort of Unforeseen circumstances, and uh, once that charging station is operational and those vehicles have arrived, we're going to start the, the we're going to start the transition of the uh, R line buses from diesel to electric. It's going to take a little bit of time because we have to train all of our drivers on them. Uh, they do operate differently. We have to train on on the actual charging procedure. But you'll notice them. I mean, they're very bright green color and they've got a very Distinctive branding on them. So they'll, so you'll notice them when they're out there. But I expect that, you know, in the spring of next year, you're going to see those 14 vehicles on the R line pretty consistently. So that'll be really exciting because then when it's done, 20% of our passengers will be
0: in a uh, uh, vehicle that's not emitting uh, fumes. So the entire R line fleet will be all electric. Yes. And all of the electric vehicles will be on the R-Line?
1: Yes. Okay. Um, Yes. I
0: mean, I saw uh, Carriage 2201 uh, at the rollout event. Yes. And I assume, and I think at the time, that was the only one you had received so far.
1: Uh, Yeah, we had actually, we've gotten um, at least two more, I think three more since then. So uh, I actually was, when I was getting to, I was, Back in our transportation yard this morning and saw two of them there. So they are rolling in. Uh, you know, we've been our our manufacturers. Thankfully, they've the timelines have been extended for delivery, but they've been keeping their timelines, which is good. So I I mean, we the vehicles are getting here when they said they would get here.
0: So in the meantime, before the charging station, how are you charging these and what is their range?
1: So they are, um, they they these are these actually have the ability to to charge both the fast charge inline chargers as well as the trickle slow charge that we do back at our depot so the three vehicles we have now they only charge at our depot uh and they charge overnight and it takes you know 4 or 5 hours to get a full charge on them these vehicles have that capability as well so we can charge them here uh we are installing chargers as part of this project at our campus as well um but uh the primary charge for them will be actually um Uh, at the charging station on on, en route uh so uh we're, we're they're not in service yet mainly because we don't have that charging facility built but um they they we can charge them here the range on these uh because they're they're you know they can get um we can get i believe it's like four or five round trips out of the r line on them and that's about 14 miles So you're looking at about 100 miles total uh on these uh that's you know, but it's, they've got a faster charge, uh, for the turtle char, or faster charge en route. So that's, we're hoping that they never dip below like 80% just because drivers can keep charging them up throughout the day. It's, so I, I like, I think of it about, I think of it like your smartphone. Uh, you know, some people, they don't charge it at all throughout the day and it just kind of wears down. Whereas some people, every time they sit at their desk, they plug their phone in for a few minutes and it kind of keeps it, that's essentially what we're doing here. We're just keeping it plugged in, uh, every chance we get to keep it kind of topped up. Um, so yeah.
0: Well, I, I I don't know much about commercial vehicles and electric charging, but so I'm trying to uh, extend what I do know from um, non-commercial electric vehicles, passenger cars, and so on. And it, most people have some sort of a uh, an AC charging system at home. You know, they 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 buy a charging device for a few hundred dollars, and it it's wired into Uh, something like a 240-volt plug characteristic for a clothes dryer. Mm -hmm. And then the output of that um, usually provides, I don't know, like 9.6 kilowatts or something um, to fill up the car, and and that allows you to charge a car overnight. And then there are, uh, by contrast, these DC charging systems. You know, with the home chargers, you're using... Uh, AC to DC conversion on board in the vehicle and I assume that's true of the bus too. I mean the the representative from the manufacturer told me that when they did a tour they actually charged them at a Walmart. I don't know whether he meant a charging station or he meant like plugging into the mains mm-hmm. but um, when electric passenger vehicles pull into a, a dedicated charging station you know, they get a high rate charge and they they can go up to of several hundred kilowatts, which is quite yeah. a lot more, and I assume that's what the charging station is capable of doing.
1: Yeah, these are not these are not the same chargers you're starting to see pop up at like gas stations or in in the parking lot of WalMarts. These are dedicated to our fleet. Um, you know, you're not going to be able to pull your car in and top up. Like the the system for this, there uh, it's called a pantograph. So it actually is a it looks like a the only way to describe it is it kind of looks like a really top heavy, um, traffic signal or not traffic signal of uh, street light, uh, where it's got like a kind of a, it's a vertical arm with a big kind of flat arm that sticks off the side. Um, and the bus pulls underneath it. And when the bus aligns properly, uh, it hasn't, it has a smaller arm that kind of comes down and, and connects to the bus and charges it that way. Uh, but yeah, it's several hundred kilowatts that is being charged at a time. I mean, it's, these are, high-power fast-charging vehicles um,
0: so well I know you I know from the manufacturers website that you can order these buses with a whole bunch of different custom configurations Yep. and that that involves things like how many batteries you want I was told at at the event by the manufacturers uh, representative that they uh, that your buses have I think eight bays of batteries um, which is a pretty good number I suppose um, but have you considered more or less? Or
1: Yeah, and this is
0: going back to the sort
1: of a, the what we are talking about earlier. One of the challenges with electrification um, is that, you know, when we buy a diesel vehicle, we spec out a diesel vehicle, and that, that vehicle can be deployed pretty universally across our entire system without problems. Um, you know, you get about 400 miles on the tank, um, and uh, that covers the overwhelming vast majority of the service we put out on a daily basis. Electric vehicles are a little different um, in that you can size the batteries according to the um, dem- the, the type of the bus route, the, the characteristics of the bus route, um, and you know the the challenge is you can certainly go 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 all in and, and get a, and get a larger battery pack for that vehicle, but it adds weight and um you know we we're running into issues with three vehicles that we actually leased to start the weight of those vehicles almost got to the point where if you know if we increased the battery pack we could not carry passengers because it exceeds the axle weight so there is a trade off in terms of um you know that you can uh, get a bigger battery pack um but you 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 definitely lose out on some of the some of the capacity issue or capacity then. So it's kind of, it's a balancing act, um, but we're, you know, we're looking at this as part of our action plan, um, as a, on a route by route basis and kind of helping make some determinations about which routes make sense from a technical standpoint to electrify quickly. Whereas, you know, where do we, where do we need to wait and see how the technology is developing and evolving? I mean, it's our first pilot was three years ago and the vehicles are so different now in terms of the range that they're getting and the the, the reliability of the vehicles that it's, we're kind of in the middle of it's all changing.
0: What's the range on the these three that you've had in service for years? So
1: when we bought those, the range was supposed to be around I believe it was about two hundred miles per charge. We are lucky if we are getting about eighty on those. It's a pretty big difference. But again, it goes back to a lot of things that are sort of not within our control, uh, some you know just personal like how people drive, uh, weather, um you know, uh, weather weather's a big factor cold days are especially brutal because uh the one thing about diesel is that it you know diesel uh engines is that they they generate heat and so heating a bus is very easy on a diesel vehicle but when on an electric vehicle every time those doors open heat escapes and you better reheat the vehicle and that's taking battery charge that would be used to power the vehicle so uh it does really poorly on cold days really cold days in comparison to you know sixty five in may so um you know we're we're actually we're gonna be keeping those vehicles we made the decision uh we we we're buying out the lease on them uh and we're gonna be using them on some shorter 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 roofs that where they'll they'll fit in but it's uh, you know it's been a, a definite learning experience
0: i'll I'll take that as uh carefully phrased
1: <laughs> no, no, they're great. I actually like those vehicles uh, and the, the newer versions are that are coming out are just so much better i mean they're 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 constantly improving
0: All right, well, um, what are your concerns about single points of failure? I mean, you're gonna have one charging station and the buses on the r line will keep running through it, pop up every you know for five or ten minutes, and then go on their way. But if that one charging station is out of service, does that put the whole r line out of service? That's a great
1: question. Um, so there's a few ways that we're dealing with that. Number one is this charging station that we're building at the, at the, uh, at the end of the, the R line. It actually has four charging pantographs there. So, uh, you know, theoretically, if one of them is down, you should be, the driver should be able to move to another station. But you're answering a really, I think, fundamental question around electrification, which is what happens if we lose power completely? Um, and that is a real concern for us. You know, we, we have a role in, um, uh, emergency management for the state. You know, we, we, when there is crisis, we're called on to move people, help evacuate, um, a few years ago in Newport when there was the big gas main or the gas outage. We were moving people to, um, warming centers and, and, and getting people out of their homes if they were, you know, and in, in keeping them warm. And that's a, that's a role we take very seriously. And if, uh, you know, if there's no electricity and our buses can't ch- charge, that's a problem. Uh we are actually working on we just received a, a very large grant from the Federal Transit Administration um, two weeks ago. We've got about twenty-two point three million dollars um to electrify our garage in uh, on, in Middletown. Uh we have about twenty-five vehicles there that are gonna be getting fully electrified. Uh part of that project is exploring exactly that question. So we're looking at uh, you know, how does solar play into this? How does battery storage play into this? How do how are we how are we making sure that we don't lose a resilient system because of the single point of failure? And that's it's a it's something that I think a lot of transit agencies are grappling with because it's it's a different it's a different animal than diesel.
0: I don't know if you're a native Rhode Islander or when you came to Rhode Island, um, but at- you're probably, you're not going to remember this, but at one point, there were electric streetcars in Providence, and that was a long time ago.
1: Uh-huh.
0: But Narragansett Electric at that time was had a big generating station over in Collier's Point, and there were three large generators um, in their hall that were responsible for providing most of the electricity that was put into the grid from that location. And of the three, one was specifically dedicated so that if something needed – if something went wrong, that would provide power for the streetcars. And I don't know whether anybody would consider something like that these days. I mean, that was a very expensive proposition, and there were a lot of reasons why they did it and who paid for it. But um, – but you know, you're in that kind of a situation. I
1: think. Absolutely. And it's I mean, this we're talking about critical infrastructure that we're delivering. So I don't I don't I agree with you that we should be thinking about how transportation, the transit output is being prioritized in some ways. Um, but we have a fantastic relationship with Rhode Island Ener- Energy. Um, is unnatural as it is to say that right now, (laughs) Uh, because I'm still wanting to call them national grid. Uh, but no, we have a, we have a a great relationship with them and, you know, they're, they're actually working very closely with us to make sure that as we are going down this path that we are, you know, thinking about all of the right things that we're thinking about, um, and that we need to be thinking about. And that's, uh, you know, we've been treating these three projects that we're working on very much as kind of building the template for how we want to roll this out system-wide. And uh, we're getting more ambitious with the scope, right? So we had our first project, which was really just demonstration, and then the R-line project, which was adding in this charging station, and then the third project in Newport's going to be, you know, thinking about the resilience of our system. And I'm hopeful that as we start to get further down this path, we are starting to think about, you know, are we building our own substations, which is a very high, strong possibility that we are going to have to do. Uh, to support the, the the demand that we're going to have on the, the grid. So I think it's uh, how we're prioritizing that and, and how we're fitting into the, the sort of the, the, the that framework is going to be critical. But, I mean, the good news is we've got, I think, all the right people at the table to help us kind of start sorting through those things.
0: Well, I, I don't want to get too far into technical details, but my understanding is that when these gasoline stations uh, put in high-rate chargers, and they have six or eight of them, um, there's no way that the grid can supply that directly. So they end up with like a 480-volt three-phase feed, and then they have a a bunch of batteries under the ground Mm -hmm. that that charges up and then provides the necessary boost when a car actually connects. But that, of course, is predicated on the assumption that, um, A, um, cars are, going to be relatively infrequent the thing won't be full most of the day and b um that the duty cycle for the car is relatively small it's not you know people pull up they charge for 20 minutes and they go away yeah and you're in the opposite situation you you have a a recurrent need for that kind of power
1: and that's, we are, you know, this, this new project we have in, in, uh, Middletown, is gonna, I mean, this is really gonna be one of the fundamental questions we're asking is exactly that. Um, you know, the, the reality is we don't, we don't have a special rate case right now for, for our, um, electric, electricity. So that's, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna have to really think through, like, you know, charging the three buses we have at night, we're paying lower rates than, middle of the day uh the new r-line project uh doesn't have that we're charging those buses throughout the day and so we're gonna have to figure out how we're how we're trying to you know just from a cost saving standpoint standpoint like battery storage becomes really attractive when you know you can um maybe recharge that battery late at night and and draw down on that throughout the day then you then trying to just charge directly from the grid um i mean these are big questions it's I think on its surface, electrification seems like really easy, like just buy electric buses. But the reality is like the implementation of this is so much more complex than I think. Uh, you know, I, I know people want us to move more quickly and we're doing our best to move as quickly as possible. But the reality is, is this is a Herculean. I mean, this is a sea change for this industry. Like, I, I don't I don't think uh, um, I think this is probably the biggest thing that any like as an industry like. The biggest single change we've probably gone through ever
0: are you going to be hit with that charging station on demand metering because of the uh, total current draw if you don't have a, a, a reservoir uh
1: possibly yes and that's i think we're going to have to explore you know as that goes live and we're studying the impacts of that how are we adjusting that you know do we want to bring in battery storage at some point do we want to yeah those are all
0: yeah have you considered uh, alternatives? I mean, electric is the easy thing. I mean, there are a bunch of companies. There are literally dozens of companies making electric buses now and a whole bunch of companies making electric cars. And everybody seems, thinks it's the wave of the future. But it's not clear that it is for a lot of reasons, not least, of course, that there are large parts of the country that really are not suitable to electric service.
1: And yeah. We've, you know, we've looked pretty strongly at electrification here. For a couple reasons. Um, you know, number one, a lot of the, honestly, a lot of the, up until very recently, a lot of the political support, not just within Rhode Island, but at a national level was really focused on electrification. And so if you wanted to stand a fighting chance of getting discretionary grants, you were talking electric. Now that's changing. Um, and I know there's some transit agencies on the West Coast that are, are moving towards hydrogen. Uh, fuel cell is an option which we have looked at a kind of a cursory level but the reality is is that it has its own uh it has its own sort of limitations in a lot of ways i know number one hydrogen is there hasn't been really a a, a good reliable source of hydrogen in new england i know that's probably going to be changing uh and that's something we're going to continue to look at but you know right now like we're moving you know the how do i say this the I mean, the, the, the climate crisis is real, right? Like we're all kind of living in the effects of it and we're, we're moving as quickly as we can to decarbonize our fleet is in, in a way that is still maintaining a high level of service for our passengers and that we're ensuring that we're, you know, we're not, we're not negatively, this isn't negatively impacting our ability to provide service. Um, you know, I think as, as, uh, you know, um, hydrogen starts to become maybe a little more widely adopted or there's a little more confidence around it. I think that's something we're going to certainly keep on the table, but for right now, like we're, we're, we're
0: neck deep in learning about electrification. (laughs) Are you, um, do you have any active projects with hydrogen fuel? No. Okay. Um, what do you see as the, the obstacles in the next few years to something like hydrogen fuel. I mean my understanding is the big problem is storing it on the vehicle.
1: Yeah, I don't know a ton about hydrogen um personally. I know some of the we've done some outreach with some of the um some of the consultant the, in the consultant world to kind of get a sense of where uh where that uh like the issues there and I know that one of the big things about New England has really been that there just has not been a really consistent like good source of hydrogen in in new england and that was kind of the limiting factor so now we did that study probably about four or five years ago so I, would, I want to go back and definitely sort of revisit that but we never even really got to the vehicle side just because we were you know at the time we were we had no no pilots and we were just really trying to get our feet underneath us in terms of what was our move going to be and we, we went in we went on electrification i mean we're still moving in that direction but it doesn't mean that we're opposed to revisiting that if, if the technology is changing. Well, so. I think
0: I, I may have helped you beat the electric bus thing to, the, to death at this point. So <laughs> let, Let's take up another topic. One of the more controversial things that, that RIPTA has been involved with, and I understand it's not RIPTA's motivation to do it, um, that there are external factors, but the complete reorganization of the Kennedy Plaza hub, uh, for bus services is, is a big deal. And mm-hmm. I don't know of anybody who really is happy with that. I mean, the riders, I think, have expressed some significant displeasure because you're, you're moving bus stops farther apart from each other and requiring longer walks. Um, and maybe Kennedy Plaza isn't the best place for bus hub, but the idea of having sort of one central hub has been a feature of RIPTA for, well, at least since World War II.
1: Yeah, so there was a, yeah, Kennedy Plaza um is and will continue to be an important, I think, place in our system. Like it's always, it's always been a, a transit center um and had a really important place in our, in, in the operations of our system. I want to make sure I'm clarifying on a couple of points here. So we are working on, uh the, we are working on a project to develop a new transportation center um, uh, on Doran street, um, across from the, uh, 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 Gary courthouse, um, kind of there's, we're, we're working on a, we're working on a project to relocate there. Um, the expressed goals of that project are to ensure that we are actually improving the transit experience for our passengers. It's not, uh, there was a, there was a version of this plan that was, there was a version of this project that was being advanced, not by Ripta uh, that, um, created a bunch of smaller hubs in downtown Providence that would have um, uh, reduced the overall footprint of transit in, in any one individual location, that is not on the table. Um, we are talking about a entirely new transit center that will maintain all of the connectivity that you have in Kennedy Plaza today at this new location. Uh, and what it will do is it will also move that indoors so that passengers who are waiting for buses are free from having to wait at the, in the elements. So, you know, we have shelters in Kennedy Plaza today, but if you're transferring across shelters, which most people are, you're, you're subject to whatever the weather conditions are. If it's raining, you're getting wet. If it's snowing, you're getting snowy. Uh, this will move our operations indoors. So that will take that off of the table for people transferring. In addition, it's going to reduce the transfer distance for passengers um, in in Kennedy Plaza today. So, if you are boarding a one bus on Fulton Street and your transfer is not occurring, or your transfer is occurring up on Exchange Terrace, that's over a 400 foot walk, and it's not a direct walk because Burnside Park is, really doesn't have any straight lines through it, and um, there's also a bit of a grade. And so, if you are somebody who requires a mobility device or uh you know uh, it, it can be a little challenging and so the new location will actually help um consolidate all of that activity into a um more compact footprint where it's just a transit center there's no Burnside park in the middle of it there's no programming that's occurring uh within the transit space it will be a space that we're you know will have programming in support of it but not in the middle of the transit activity so that process right now, we're working on that um, with the blessing of the governor's office. We're very excited about that project. Actually, um, you know, I've I have regular communication with our passengers, uh, uh, or I should say, I try to have regular communication with his, with our passengers. I talk to the Rhode Island Transit Riders uh, group, is you know, on a pretty regular basis. And I certainly understand that there are concerns and my genuine hope is that in, as a project unfolds and we're, um, you know, we're getting further into design that they're going to, you know, we're going to bring people around and they're going to see that this isn't just an attempt to, um, dismantle the transit system, uh, which I, I understand where that comes from, but I didn't get into my career to be in, uh, as a transportation planner to, um, uh, dismantle transit systems. <laughs> uh but I, I certainly understand where that comes from.
0: Well, that's certainly reassuring. What's the time frame on the uh the new uh transit facility at Dorns?
1: Yeah, so we are currently right now um we're very much in uh the procurement phase of all of this. So we have we we have very limited folks on board in terms of uh the actual design of the project. Right now we're focusing on crafting the request for proposals that will bring on our developer we're looking at a public private partnership for this that will actually bring on a developer who will not only construct the facility but will also have an obligation to operate and maintain the facility over the next 30 years and what i mean by that is uh we'll provide the bus service obviously but if there's any you know if there's um you know burned out light bulbs or a spill or a leak in the roof or something like that, they're the ones responsible for actually maintaining that space. And it allows us to, uh, really focus on what we do well, which is provide bus service and lets them kind of manage that space. So we anticipate that, uh, you know, it's kind of a complex structure, uh, for a project. Uh, so we're, we're working on that right now. We anticipate all in that this is going to be open in about three years if everything goes smoothly. Um, And we're hoping that the RFP will be um, issued in uh, the next month or so.
0: Well, when you say public-private partnership, do you contemplate something like South Station in Boston, where there are restaurants and all sorts of other private businesses that are operating within the transit facility.
1: Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that we're looking at. You know, this is not just a transit center. We're we're trying to think about this in, in the sense of, like, we want to create a civic space. We want to create somewhere that, you know, people feel, um, safe and welcoming and inviting. Um, and, uh, we want to create uses that are, that are not in competition with the transit center, but are supportive of it. So we're thinking, I mean, I think South Station's a little bit of a different scale, but yeah, we're thinking about, you know, what does liner retail look like? You know, are we going to bring in coffee shops? Are we going to bring in, uh, you know, dry cleaners, uh, you know, how does that, like, what, what types of, you know, retailers are going to support that? I think one of the things we're most excited about is uh the, the uh hope that we're going to create, not hope, but we're going to, we're, we're including housing as part of this. So on the upper floors above the transit center, uh there will be, um, you know, housing to support, you know, people who want to live downtown. And I mean, what's better than, you know, you're going to have the best transit access in the state uh, if you live there. So it's, you know, it's, kind of a, we think it has a lot of uh, potential to be a really good thing for a lot of people. Um, so we're trying to pull that all together right now. Like I said, our goal is to have the um, request for proposals issued this fall. Uh, you know, we are committed to making sure that we are engaging our passengers and the public throughout the development of the project. Uh, we have to get somebody on board to design it first, but once that, once that, um, once we have that developer on board, you know, we are anticipating a robust engagement, um, a robust level of engagement with any stakeholder, including, most importantly,
0: our riders. Well, I mean, it's probably a a, a better public policy use for that land than, say, a baseball stadium.
1: I will uh, refrain from any. Uh, uh, I, I'm here to talk about transit. <laughs> OK,
0: fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm interested in your your concept of the mixed use with housing and so forth. Um, I mean, is that does that open up funding sources? I guess that's
1: that's part of the work we're doing right now. Is you know we are uh, we are exploring. You know we have we have money that was set aside from a bond back in 2014 to develop this. We're using that, but we're looking at what other you know, we're looking at what revenue streams exist. We're looking at what funding opportunities might be opened up like because we're looking at housing. We're looking at mixed use. You know, it's not just, uh, we're not just, we're not just looking for um, discretionary grant opportunities. I mean, we're looking all over the place to see like what's there and how do we structure this in a way that gets, gets the, that delivers the project in a way that's going to be most beneficial. I think this is, it's kind of a, it's an exciting project to be working on. Quite honestly, I, I understand why there's a lot of um, I understand historically why there's been some like sort of skepticism around it. But I think there's a real opportunity to do something really special here. And, you know, I'm I'm I'm, I'm hopeful that when this is done, we're not just it's not just a, you know, a, a transit center, but it's it is something that Rhode Islanders and, and uh, Providence residents can be really proud of.
0: Well, at one time, it was uh, common to have certain businesses located in transit centers that catered specifically to uh, commuters, people who would depart in the morning and then come back in the evening. And that would include everything from, uh, you mentioned dry cleaners, which is an obvious uh, opportunity for that. Um, but they used to have shoe repair. And I mean, I, obviously, this is decades ago. They even had things like typewriter rental and typewriter repair services because people wanted that, too, if they were commuting out and then coming back in. And so I, I don't know in the modern era, many decades later, what sort of businesses are appropriate or would be in demand, and that's probably something that you've looked at, especially in other cities.
1: Yeah, and this is where, um you know, we're – You know, we're, we're, as we're talking to the development community, at the end of the day, like, Ripta is interested in providing transit service. That's what we do. Uh, it's what we do well. And we're not, we're not overly interested in becoming, um, managing retail spaces, right? We wanna, so we're, 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 we're looking to the development community to help us do some of that work and figure out, like, what is the right mix of retail here? and and you know how much space is actually needed for this and what are the types of businesses that would, would be beneficial here. Uh, and you know everything we're hearing so far is positive. We we're hearing a lot of uh from the development, you know, the we we did a we did a very earlier this summer we did a request for expressions of interest into the project where we uh let uh where we basically said, hey world, here's this project we're thinking about, give us your thoughts about where we're coming up short. Are there inherent strengths to this that we need to play into? And everything we're hearing is that, you know, it's that there's a that the project has good bones and it's got a lot of interesting parts to it that are interesting to developers. It's just going to be a matter of setting up the structure to get it right. And so that's where we're kind of focused right now. But yeah, I think it's going to be, you know, I mean, some of the things that we've heard from our passengers that they want, they want to see bike repair stations and they want to see uh, you know, we've heard requests for um, lactation rooms. We've heard requests that, you know, people have access to, you know, things like Amazon lockers potentially, or, uh, you know, that people just want to, I, I agree with you 100%, Michael, that we want to get, we want this to be retail that's supportive to our passengers and that they're, you know, it's helping them in their daily commute. So uh, cool. there's a lot of work to be done there still.
0: Well, I mean, I could see a lot of things like urgent care facilities, which would be somewhat nontraditional in a transit facility, but there might be significant demand for a place like that. Um, but what I'm really getting at here is that the retail facilities, uh, as well as the housing, I think will follow your demographics of your ridership, and that's something that is very much an issue for RIPTA. And, um, I mean, people who are on food stamps are not buying, you know, lattes hmm yeah
1: I think this is this is actually um it's a great point and you know I think I think when I when I think about Kennedy Plaza and some of the challenges that that space has it's it's a sprawling large plaza I mean there's a lot of just physical space there and then when you add in the fact that um you know, we're spread out all the way up to exchange terrace, that it's just that it's a it's a huge amount of space, right? And it's not what I'd consider to be a manageable amount of space for any one, especially when there's multiple parties there. Like it's it's a lot. And so you're right. Like I think that the type of people, the demographics of people that are um using our system, you know, as we move to this new location, like it's how am I spreading this together? It's um you know, focusing on you know, we've we've I've been meeting with social service agencies that are, you know, lamenting all the shortcomings in KP and are we creating spaces there where, you know, they feel like they have access to support their clientele. And I mean, so this is stuff we're actually maybe not even in a retail capacity, but like are we you know, we're providing opportunities. I, I was speaking with the folks at Crossroads a couple months ago and they're like, you know, having a room that we have access to, if somebody if we need to provide services for somebody, we can do it right there. And 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 in, a, in an environment that's just not in the middle of this sprawling place, like that 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 would be great. And so, we're we're trying to fold that into this conversation. Like it's 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 a transit center, but it's not just a transit center. Like we're trying to think about it bigger than that. Like it it we you know I think we're we're kind of one of those points where I think like this is where. It's like a direct interaction with government in a way that most people don't have on a daily basis. And we're trying to figure out how we do this in a way that is making this all better for everybody. It it seems like a tall order.
0: (laughs) Have you given any thought to expansion of operating hours, at least on some lines? I mean, the R-line runs, I think, from like 5 a.m. to 1 a.m. or so. Yes. Nothing in Richter runs between 1 a.m. and 5 a.m.
1: Correct uh yeah absolutely so i i think about um there's kind of three fundamentals of really good service and that's your frequency your span and your um and the days of service and so your frequency is how often your bus comes so like the airlines every 10 minutes there's other routes that are only once an hour uh there's some that are like every 90 minutes we try to avoid that whenever possible we want service to be frequent we also want it to gra- operate its spans that work for people not everyone works nine to five you know uh so often we hear about people that are you know work in the restaurant industry that they get out of work at 11 12 o'clock at night they need a bus uh so that span is critical and also then your your the days of service uh again not everyone's working monday to friday so you want to make sure that your service on saturday and sunday is just as robust as it is on the weekdays um that is something that i am i take very seriously uh and that's actually an area where we have a lot of room to improve uh, and are continuing to do so. We actually over the past two years in the middle of the pandemic, we've been expanding service on weekends and on evenings on a lot of routes, um, kind of under the radar, but we have been really pushing that. And it's somewhere where I want to continue. I, you know, ideally I'd love to see like the R line actually be 24 hours. Uh, there's a lot of services we have that should be operating a lot later. Uh, you know, this is we get into the, the, you know, the master planning process we went through, went through. There's some high-profile projects in there, but the underlying story is it's just bread and butter, better bus
0: service. Well, I mean, that's a, f- a frequent uh, request that I hear is, why isn't something like Caroline 24 hours? I mean, is that a, a, a thing that's monetarily possible, and what are the obstacles there?
1: It's budgetarily an issue right now. That's kind of a – we're – it's um, – You know, there are three, there are three things required for any bus service to operate. You gotta have the people to operate the buses, the drivers. You gotta have the budget to support it and you have to have the vehicles. Our issues, generally speaking, are never the buses and the drivers. It's always the budget to support that. So, you know, adding late night service on the R line, those buses are back at the garage. So we have the vehicles to do it. We don't have the drivers, but we could hire them. The issue is the underlying issue is the budget. And we've always said, like, this is our, you know, this is kind of the underlying issue of RIPTA is we can do more. We just need the resources to, to, to do that. Um, and that's where the master plan, I think, has helped us start to tell our story a little more clearly that we want to expand service. We want to provide more service, but we have to have the financial support to do so. And this is, you know, this is this is true of every municipality. Like every every transit agency is dealing with um, with this to some degree. We're not unique, but I think, you know, we've been trying over the past couple of years to really refine our story, be clear about it, and and we're starting to, I think, get some traction around the idea that to be successful as a state, we have to start expanding public transportation. Absolutely
0: has Ripta engaged in any uh, public relations efforts in that regard? Uh
1: we are starting to. So last legislative session we um we definitely had some conversations with legislators. There was some legislation introduced that would have provided bond funds or a bond referendum for about 100 million dollars that would have supported capital investments at Ripta, jumpstarting us, but it doesn't quite it doesn't actually that would have addressed capital. It would not have addressed the underlying operational issues, which is the bigger one. But the hope was that that would springboard us into this next legislative year, where we talk about operations. We are. Um, I view this as kind of the uh, most important thing we're working on right now as an agency is how we are um, telling that story. And and I think over the next year, we're gonna you know we're gonna be we're gonna be really spending a lot of time focusing on that.
0: I mean, I remember a few years ago uh, before Scott Avedisian was CEO, uh, there was a um, an incident where the legislature was really surprised that Ripta had not even asked for more money because they were expecting that, but they weren't going to give Ripta any more money if Ripta didn't ask for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think anything like that has been repeated in recent years. Um and of course, you, you now have a CEO who's much more politically savvy. Um, but I assume things like that are, are not happening now.
1: No, we we have a we have regular interaction with legislators, and um, you're correct. Like our CEO is very in tune with what is happening at a um, in the, within the legislature, and is, you know, we have a lot of conversations with folks up at the state house. Um, you know. I think the challenge for us has always been a story of, like, I think it's universally acknowledged by most people that I've spoken to, and maybe I'm biased, that Ripton needs more resources. But there's never been a story about how those are going to be spent or how what Ripton is going to do with those. And so I could certainly appreciate as a legislator, like, the hesitancy in providing more resources to an agency without a clear plan on how they're going to be used. I think the thing we've really tried to do and we're trying to do right now is position ourselves to say, listen, we have a vision and this vision is not one that we came up with on our own. Like this was a huge undertaking on our part. We, you know, we engaged. We had over a thousand interactions with passengers in the development of our master plan. Uh, you know, it's data driven. We're looking at where there's actually density to support transit ridership. Uh, and it's based on really, you know, sound. Um, uh You know, a sound, um, planning uh, foundation. So we have a very clear vision for what we want to do. Now it's just a matter of how do we fund it? And quite frankly, I think, you know, it was adopted in 2020. The past two years have kind of been a little bit, uh, focused on the fact that it seems like the world is ending in a lot of ways. So I think as we're kind of rounding that bend, uh, you know, we're, we are really looking forward to this year to having those conversations and hopefully moving this Significantly down the field, so we can actually start to implement some of this meaningfully.
0: Well, what what did the pandemic have on you other than simple decrease in ridership, and what are you what are you experiencing in recovery from it?
1: It's been it's been challenging. We were fortunate in the early days of the pandemic. Uh, we did see a big in decrease in ridership, but we had a lot of support at the state level. We didn't have to we didn't reduce service at all throughout the pandemic, which was really wonderful. Because um, you know the value that we brought to people who were still having to get to work as um, essential employees, we were we were able to continue to provide that service. Um, but it really it 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 it, to, it was pretty decimating in terms of just like you know passenger revenues are down. Uh, you know, uh, not just passenger revenues, but third party revenues were all kind of messed up. Gas prices were gas prices. Supply chains are all kind of all over the place, you know, we have not really had huge impacts from the, the pandemic up until, you know, honestly, the past six months or so have probably been the hardest. Um, just because I think we're now kind of in this like period where um, relief funding is kind of starting to wane. And then we're also, you know, we're struggling with recruiting employees because like prices have gone up. And so now you're seeing like uh, starting drivers are, you know, it's, uh, we're just, we're, we're struggling with recruitment. And there's just a lot of like things that are directly related to the pandemic that are just that are lingering or not lingering, but it's just been slow, slow burns that are are that we've been kind of working through. But I mean, I, I think we're in a good spot as an agency and uh we're optimistic for the future for sure. Uh And, you know, I think we've fared a whole lot better than a lot of, our, I talked to, I talked to my peers of other agencies and some of the stuff that they've had to do over the past couple of years, I'm just really grateful we never had to.
0: Well, you, you bring up the issue of recruiting and retention. Um, and what are the the issues with that? I mean, what does somebody, what qualifications does it take to be a driver for you?
1: Well, you know, we're obviously wanting to attract people who are committed to public service and wanting to do good things in their community, um, and provide a high level of customer service. Um, you know, it's, it's challenging right now because we are, um, you know, I mean, it's, we're contractually bound through an agreement with our union on wages. And that's, you know, a, you know, a little bit, we have a large number of employees and we're bound by our budgets. And so it's raising wages is, is can be difficult at times. And we're also cognizant of what's happening with, you know, other, other state level employees and how their wages are. And it's just it's um, I think we're struggling right now because a lot of the private sector has been you know I mean you can go to McDonald's and start at 17 18 bucks an hour uh, we offer an amazing benefits package but it's uh, um, you know it's uh, at walking in entry level can be a little bit tough when you're you know when you're competing with some of the uh, private industry who's really gone all in on increasing wages lately.
0: Well, I, I know people who have applied for, uh, uh, driver positions that ripped in for one reason or another just were not considered. So how difficult is it when you recruit people? And what is, I mean, what, at one point I was told, uh, by AAA that they were looking for tow truck drivers. Mm-hmm. and they uh, they got an a- about 250 applicants. I-, I can't verify this, but I was told they got 250 applicants, of whom I think about 120 of them uh, flunked the background check, and another 100 of them flunked the drug, drug test, and eventually um, some of them flunked the road test. And by the end of it, out of 250 applicants, I think they hired four of them.
1: Yeah, it's no, that's the reality. I think it's not just us. It's, it's everybody who's looking for drivers of, you know, large commercial vehicles. Uh, we historically have required a CDL to even apply. Uh, we have actually, um, uh, we have actually started, uh, training people for their CDL. So we are now accepting drivers who don't, or don't have a CDL. Um, it will actually train them as part of the job. Uh, and, and, you know, get them that training to, but it obviously takes longer to train them uh but we've been, we've you know we um yeah it's 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 been the the whole recruitment thing has been bumpy lately um uh, not going to lie it's been a it's been challenging and i think the panda it's directly related to the pandemic uh, i think people's expectations around work have changed you know being a bus driver is not easy work um and often when you're starting at the bottom of the seniority list you're you're not getting the best shifts to start right out of the gate we're looking at ways that we can make our our shifts more friendly to people who are coming in the door, um, and, you know, we're looking at some things there that we can do within our existing contract to sort of address how we're improving the uh, working conditions for new employees, but, yeah, it's, it's
0: a challenge. What if your drivers said that they wanted both the existing drivers and the uh, prospective drivers? Well, I don't have a
1: huge amount of Insight from perspective drivers, um, and I, I don't work in our HR department, so I, 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 but I will tell you, you know, some of the things that we're working on right now. Um, you know, traditionally speaking, uh, your busiest times as a bus driver are uh, in, or, you know, your AM and your PM morning commutes. Your the peak periods is what we call them. So what happens is you, generally speaking, don't need as many drivers in the middle of the day. So you end up creating what's called a split shift where you, they might work like four hours in the morning and then take two hours off and come work four hours in the afternoon, uh, which can be really hard for some, some people love it. Other people are like, oh, I got this like weird two hour thing. i to go work again. And it, it kind of throws a wrench in their day. Um, we're working on uh, trying to reduce those as much as we can. So when people are um, picking their job that they've got us, they've got eight hours um, on the clock and that's, you know, something that, you know, once they're done, they're done. Um, you know, that's, that's one big thing we're trying to do. We're also, you know, um, yeah, I mean, that's, um, <laughs> it's, it's a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a tough job.
0: <laughs> if people work a split shift four hours on two hours off four hours on again, do you buy them lunch?
1: <laughs> no, uh, we do not. <laughs> um, um, but we are always looking for ways that we can show our employees appreciation but no that's that
0: they are they are they get their own lunch i'm just thinking that would at least make it a, a sort of an evening and out but i don't know yeah um but of course that's your contract your collective bargaining situation so i don't know yeah um, all right let's let's try a, a, another major issue which is um ripta has done some significant uh adoption of technological improvements and the, there have been two things in particular that you guys have done one is the um uh, y- you've developed a relationship with the transit app and that's now i guess your official how to ride rip the thing it tells you mm-hmm. where to, you, know, you put in a location where you are where, where your start point is where your end point is and it tells you which bus to take it tells you um, where to transfer and it tells you where the physical bus is with real-time GPS information, which yes. is something that just simply didn't exist a few years ago. Um, and the other big technological change has been the use of the, the Wave payment system. Um, and I know you've had some, some problems with that, especially because Wave is two completely disconnected, bifurcated forks, you know, one for the plastic card and one for the virtual card on the, on the app. Um, and they don't communicate with each other. So, um, But WAVE does offer a lot of significant advantages, and the biggest one to me that you know, I don't think most people even know about is the pay-as-you-go option, yep. where you know once you buy $6 in, in fares per day, you, you own a, a one-day fare pass, and you can ride for the rest of the day for free. And then I, I don't remember what the number is, but I think it's $80 a month. Sure, once $70. You paid, $80. Yeah, once you've paid that, um, you now have a monthly pass for the rest of the month. So uh, I'm wondering, uh, you know, first of all, what has been the adoption of those technological improvements? I mean, how many people are using these things? How many people even know about them?
1: Yeah. So I should clarify, we do um, we do have a relationship with Transit App. They're not our official provider on that. Uh, we don't actually have an official provider, but they, they do. We do... Um, some promotion of them and, and, but yeah, that's, that's, um, yeah, we, we work with them, but, um, as far as wave is concerned, you know, the big, the big advantage for us is we really wanted to create a fair payment system that allowed people more flexibility in how they use our system. Uh, we think we've gotten that it does definitely, it's had some, um, growing pains as we've, as adoptions increased, um, right now, um, I think it was looking at the numbers, and we're somewhere between like thirty five and forty percent of our passengers are using wave at this point, which is admittedly a little lower than I would like. Um, you know, I, ideally we get everyone moved over to it as moved over to it. Um, but we've we've essentially at this point discontinued any other any existing any fare products on our legacy system, which was the old paper-based system that we had the those sort fare of products. Um, the only things that are really, you're using that fare box for anymore is just to pay cash. Our new wave system, we don't, they don't have cash readers on them. It's only on, only on the old system.
0: When you say uh, 30, 35 to forty percent using wave, one way or another, first of all, is that a percentage of paying riders? Or is that a percentage of all riders? Because obviously, all riders. riders aren't paying. All riders. And
1: so there are passengers who are not paying fares either because they've got a, a free and reduced fare bus pass, or they might be um, in one of our. Um, U pass agreements, which is uh the students riding our buses uh from college, they use their student ID when they board, so they, they're not using WAVE necessarily. Um so there's a there's a pretty significant number of people who are 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 not using WAVE for one reason or another. Um and in the long term we want to try to get everyone switched over to that new system. Uh mainly because it, it does have a lot of advantages to it. Um, you know, earn as you go is I think one of the most exciting things because you're absolutely right. Like if you tap the card, if you tap your card, it charges you $2, you get an hour of unlimited travel for $2, If you a couple hours later, tap again, it's another two bucks. And then, uh, once you've gotten to the price of a, of a day pass, which is six bucks, uh, it, it automatically transfers your, your, wave card into a day pass for the remainder of that day and the advantage there is then you don't have to make that decision first thing in the morning do i need a day pass and then once you've earned it you can ride the rest of the day for free same thing on the monthly pass once you hit 70 in the calendar month the rest of that month is free so you can you can reach a day you can reach a monthly pass in as little as 12 days if you're a regular rider uh and this is really great because it makes sure that everyone has access to the best value that we offer so, um, you know, the reason we did this is we had a lot of passengers who, uh, were using our old one week passes, which were $25 pop, uh, and because they didn't have $70 on the first of the month. And so they would every week, they'd pay 25 bucks. And by the end of the month, they had spent $100 on, tra- on transit, whereas somebody else who had the avail- who had the ability, uh, to pay $70 bucks upfront was getting a better deal than them. We just thought fundamentally that was unfair that we were, you know, sort of penalizing people for for not having seventy dollars. So we're really excited about that move. Um a couple of the other things that have kind of come about with WAVE, um uh we have account protection for the first time. So if you register your WAVE account, uh if you lose your card, you lose your smartphone for some reason, um, you know, we can uh you call customer service, you say I registered my account, my email is, you know, whatever your email address is, we look it up and we say, great, we'll send you a new card. Um, and we'll, you know, it'll retain the balance that is on it. We'll shut down the old card. It'll retain the balance on there and, uh, we'll, we'll, you know, send you a new card. Um, so you have the ability to actually, uh, keep your lost bears. And then you have things like, a, like your ridership tracking. So if you're interested in, you know, how often you ride or, or, you know, that's all available in a downloadable database from the website once you've registered. Um, we're we're proud of the Wave system. I know it, it has had some had some growing pains. Uh, there's definitely been some confusion around what products are available, what are not available. But we've really worked to sort of streamline our fare products down into the most popular ones, um, and uh, the ones that we're providing the best best value for our passengers. So
0: one concern I, I've heard voiced uh, among a number of riders with Wave is that it does retain uh, a complete record of every time you board the bus or mm-hmm. transfer. And I think that makes some people uncomfortable because they they see all this information that's very private to them, and they have no idea who has access to that or how long it's retained or or who might get access to that.
1: Yes. So as part of our work around this, we have been updating our privacy policy. I will tell you that in broad strokes, we are committed that we are not sharing your data with anybody else ever. Uh, We do not share individual user data. Data. We have in the past um, uh, honored requests for aggregated data across our system. But so that's like, you know, if, uh, you know, you get a college student who's learning about something, we'll share with them system wide data saying, oh, there was X number of people that wrote this cluster or did that. But we're now but we're 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 stripping out any reference to um, the actual individual user. So that's not trackable across um, individual users on any level and um that's something that we're we're wholeheartedly committed to we don't we don't it's not our business to sell our passengers information about how they're traveling in our system that's just for care of that information
0: what happens if you receive a subpoena either from law enforcement or or an inquiry from law enforcement without a subpoena or a subpoena from a civil matter i mean the the worst case scenario for that i guess is hypothetically you know somebody's in divorce proceeding and decides to uh, find out who visits his mistress
1: yeah i mean if we, we would comply with any legal requirement to do so but i mean we've taken a pretty firm position that you know our passengers data is their their own and we've you know we've gotten requests from other outside parties that are interested in you know uh, hey, we, we bought bus passes for these people. We want to know how often they're riding. We're not sharing that information. We just don't. Um, especially if it's done without that person's knowledge. Like, you know, uh, we've, we've been clear if, you know, uh, uh, some organization wants to buy bus passes for people and they want to see how they're using them. As long as people consent consented up front, we'll share it, but we're, we're, we're just not in the business of doing that. But, you know, if we get our legal order to do something, we have to do what we have. To, I mean, we have to follow the legal order. Um, but we, you know, uh, we have been working on uh, updating our private pol- privacy policy because this has been, um, a new world for us. But, you know, I'm, I'm a consumer. I don't want my info. I, I get it. Like I don't want my information being shared with other people. Um, I take that stuff very seriously and I, I, I want to treat our passengers with the same level of respect that I'd expect.
0: Well, a number of social media organizations like Yahoo and uh, uh, Twitter have policies where if they receive a subpoena request like that for user data, they will notify the user and give the user an opportunity to object. Um, does rip 2 you have anything like that that you will do?
1: No, but I will pass that information along um, and, and our legal department and see if they've got any, any thoughts on, on that. I, 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 w- I would have to talk to them. I understand. I, I, it's a great suggestion.
0: Well, I was mostly asking what the policy was. I'm not, I'm not expecting you to formulate it here in the conversation.
1: Yeah, no. Um, I mean, our policy has always been that if we receive a request uh, or it's not a request, but an order, we would, we would honor that order. Um, obviously we don't want to be, but, but I, I mean, you're raising a fair point And I think that's something that I would certainly, um, you know, I mean, our, we when we started the wave project, we definitely knew that our relationship with passenger data was changing and we've been adjusting accordingly. But now that it's officially here and launched, um, you know, it's yeah, we we've been it's been a lot of growth for the agency just in how we're thinking about that topic. Um And I I don't know that we're 100 percent of the way there yet, but we are you know, I think we value our passengers. Privacy and that's something we want to maintain and be honest about and transparent about.
0: So, what percentage of your users now are paying cash? So,
1: um, we've always hovered around ten percent, but I saw some numbers last week that had us as high as twenty, which seemed really odd to me because we've always been kind of on the lower end. Because we have a very robust free and reduced fare um, uh, program in place uh, that was uh, historically, we had, I think it was like 25% of our passengers enrolled in that program. Um, And so our cash numbers have always been sort of low. So I saw a number that was high last week. I have not had an opportunity to understand that any better, but we've historically been around 10%.
0: Okay. Um, So I guess to to try to sort of wrap this up a bit, because we've, had a long conversation and we've spent a fair amount of time on this. Um, and we're up to, I think about an hour and a half on a one hour call. So um, I guess what I'm, I'm interested in knowing at this point really is um, in the, in the broadest possible sense, um, what do you, I mean, I'm not phrasing details like what's in the, the, the 2040 plan or something. Like, yeah. But in the broadest possible sense, what does RIPTA want to do? Uh, what do they want to accomplish? What is the mission? And, and I'm not looking for, you know, Pablum. I'm not looking for, yeah, we're we're here to provide good ridership experiences.
1: Yeah. No, I, I think I understand your question. And mm-hmm. I'm not going to, you know, I, could, I mean, I'm not going to go into our mission statement. But, I mean, I think at the end of the day, the work I'm trying to get done at RIPTA and the work that I think our leadership team is trying to do is we're trying to get people to ride our system and grow this agency. I think we all acknowledge that transit is an underutilized resource in the state, despite the fact that we have a system that punches above its weight in our, you know, as we're discussing earlier, we all acknowledge that there are more people should be riding transit. And you were, you highlighted it earlier, Michael, when you were talking about, well, you know, in New York city, you have a lot of people who don't necessarily rely on cars and that's not a reflection of socioeconomic status. Um, you know, the reality is, is we have great bones. We are a dense, small state with a lot of people living in a small area. And we have every reason to have people riding transit. And the reason we haven't historically has been underinvestment in our transit system. And so, um, you know, I think it is my mission here uh, while I'm here to try to advance that cause as much as possible. And when you do that, you're doing things like positively impacting climate change and you're addressing equity and you're addressing, um, accessibility and, you know, uh, you're leveling the playing field for people who might have a disability, like good transit solves so many problems. And I just feel like if, if we get it right, it, it we're, we're objectively moving the state forward. And so that is at the end of the day, what I'm trying to do. Um, and I think I think that's a sentiment that our, our our CEO and the leadership team would hear if they would share.
0: Do you think that there's a a, a reputational obstacle uh, to increasing ridership with RIPTA, that there are people who just don't want to do it?
1: Yeah, I do. Um, I think, you know, I think RIPTA has had um, had uh, has had historically um, not always the best reputation. Uh, And I think that's something that we're actively working on addressing as an agency. You know, I mean, there's, you know, we, you said at the beginning, you know, we had that big ribbon cutting on our electric vehicles and it wasn't any small coincidence that we had our entire congressional delegation there and the governor and, you know, the, this Lieutenant governor and the regional administrator for the federal transit administration was there like we are we are trying to do the work to advance the conversation around transit and move beyond the kind of the issues that have been there historically. And so we can create a better transit network. I mean, it's the bones are there. And if you go to other similarly sized places around the country or you even I mean, you know, there's there's other places that have done this work that are are making headway and gains and they're 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 getting past their own sort of reputational issues from historical
0: you know historical issues and I think we we're doing that work as well. Well, I I appreciate your point. I mean, I mean, Rhode Island is is never going to be New York City. It's never going to be Tokyo. It's never going to be London. It's never going to be Moscow. Mm-hmm. Uh, it certainly is Rhode Island and uh, there are unique facilities here um which make it Rhode Island.
1: Yes. But when you look at it uh you know we're smaller than Indianapolis, we're smaller than Kansas City, we're smaller than Salt Lake City. We outperform all those cities uh in terms of passengers who use our system. Um you know we 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 um you know, I, I don't want to pick on any peer agency, but it, I mean, you just go to the national transit Database. This is all there. There are transit agencies that have literally doubled the service we have and are carrying, you know, 80, 70, 80% of our ridership. Like we, we outperform based on our size alone. Like we, 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 we do. Um, I just think it's, you know, there's a story that has to be told that we're we've, historically not done a great job of and that's part of our work here is how do we tell a different story how do we get people excited about what we're doing most importantly how do we get people out of their car and into our onto you know it's not even just the bus it's walking it's riding bikes like it's all those things you know benefit all of us so that's that's kind of our mission how do we get people to sort of make that leap
0: well thank you i think you've been very effective at telling that Ripta story
1: Thanks, Michael. No, I appreciate it. This has been great. Um, and uh, yeah, this has been really nice. I appreciate you taking the time to pick my brain on this stuff. <laughs>
0: I, I appreciate you're doing the same. So and making yourself available. So I think that's uh, a good time to uh, wrap this up and, and close on, on that note. Um, so this has been uh, Greg um uh, with uh, the Round Public Transit Agency, who's essentially in charge of planning for RIPTA. Um and this has been Michael Billow, news editor at Motif Magazine. So thank you very much. Thank you, Michael. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
1: This has been Between the Lines with Motif Magazine. We want to take this opportunity to once more thank the sponsors for this episode, The Parlor of Providence, R1 Indoor Carding, the Trinity Brewhouse Beer Garden, Maker Fair, and Graysale Brewing of Rhode Island. For more stories like these, we hope you check out the latest issue of Motif Magazine and stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you for listening.